Dr. Andrew Sandler from the Culture Center for Cultural Leadership as he brings the word tonight. Thank you, Pastor Shea, and thank you, dear Christ Dominion people and Living Church, for the privilege of participating in this glorious and memorable ceremony. This graduation address will be radically different from those delivered in secular and even some Christian educational institutions. Too many of those are committed to Darwinism and statism and postmodernism and existentialism and cultural Marxism. For the graduation speakers, the great evils that the graduates must overcome include Christian culture the American heritage, biblical sexual standards, and the rule of law. Judah, their way is not our way. Their God is not our God. We can and should love them as fellow human creatures created in God's image, but we cannot compromise We cannot compromise with them one inch. We stand on one side of the antithesis, and they stand on the other side. The Bible makes this very plain. I'm reading from the prophet Micah, chapter 6. Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, and the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly and to love mercy? And to walk humbly with your God. In the book of Micah, God has been reprimanding his people for their apostasy. They've been guilty of two principal classifications of sin. The first is idolatry. The second is stealing from the poor and weak. The Jews repeated these twin sins for hundreds of years before God finally sold them into captivity, both the northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, centered in Jerusalem, called Judah, had turned away from the living God and served the gods of the heathen nation surrounding them. In turning from God, they turned from his holy Torah, his law, and had prayed on the poorest and weakest among them, the ones who couldn't defend themselves. In fact, in chapter 2, God metaphorically describes them as, as, as cannibals, eating the flesh of their own brothers and sisters. We can't imagine how angry this made God. 
In chapter 6 here, he lays out a covenant lawsuit. Because he's a God that's drenched in justice, he sets up a courtroom. He's the plaintiff. The prophet Micah is his counselor. Judah is the defendant. And the witnesses are, perhaps surprisingly, the mountains of the earth. The mountains were there when God entered into a covenant with Judah. They had been witnesses to the entire apostasy of Israel. And now God called them as witnesses in the courtroom. In the first few verses of chapter 6, he addresses a couple of their excuses when he accuses them of their apostasy. But he comes in verse 8 to the heart of the entire book. The thought that they could bribe God with rituals and sacrifices. And in this confrontation, Micah poses and answers a weighty question. What does the Lord require? That's a question that God poses of us. And it's one we should consider every day of our lives. Due to many years from now, you might forget much about this ceremony. But please don't forget the truth of Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, what the Lord requires. God has shown what is good, we read. We'd be lost in spiritual and mental darkness caused by our sin were it not for the word of God. Beware of people who say that we can't understand God's word. There are some things in the Bible that are difficult to understand, but they're not impossible to understand. God speaks clearly. And our God is a, if I may say so, chatty God. He talked to the saints in biblical times, and he speaks to us in his word. The Bible is not the longest book ever written, but it's still pretty long. And it shows that God delights to communicate with us in language. One reason it's so vital that we know language is so that we can understand what God is saying in his word. Language is God's gift to us mainly so that we can talk to God and that he can talk to us. God has shown us what we need to know. He hasn't hidden it. God doesn't hide his will to his people or the world. We speak of the Bible and of creation as God's revelation. He has revealed his will. He hasn't obscured it. Our postmodern age is a deeply skeptical age. It believes we cannot have certain knowledge, that our minds don't correspond to objective reality. We must create that reality. Each of us must create his own facts or his own truth. That idea might appear humble, but it's actually a form of high-handed rebellion. Romans 1 tells us that the invisible things of the world are clearly seen in creation. Clearly seen, Paul writes. Similarly, Psalm 119 discloses that the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It reveals, it doesn't hide. And most of the Bible is not difficult to understand. God is absolute. He is separate from, but consistently involved in his creation. 
God is a trinity. Man sinned, but God promised a savior, his son who died on the cross and rose to save the world. He rained down his Holy Spirit to accomplish his will. He's using his people to incrementally establish his kingdom in the earth. These matters are not unclear. Next, the Jews knew what was good. So do we. When Micah declares that God chose what is good, he's probably thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes. He means the law, the Torah. To fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. One of the great lies that even many professed Christians believe is that God's law is burdensome, harsh, and cruel. He's constantly trying to scourge and punish his people. There's one word word for that notion, blasphemy. God gave his law for our good always. He does lovingly discipline us when we stray from his path. But even then, he's striving to move us back into the path of his law so that he can rain down his blessings on us. Beware of those who slander God's motive. That's what Satan did to Eve. He lied. He told her that God was keeping good things from her because he didn't want her to live life to the fullest. This is false, and it's slanderous. God gave us his law for our good always so we could live the good life. God created the cosmological operating system, and he knows how it works, and he gave us the Bible as the manual. If we don't operate according to the manual, we will break the cosmic environment. God wants us to be happy, and he alone knows how to make us happy, and he gave us his word to obey so that we will be happy. When we break God's law, when we persist in our disobedience, when we refuse to repent, we invite sadness, degradation, futility, and destruction. And if you're looking around in our world and seeing all of the evil that's going on, and you're getting terribly frightened, saying, is this all going to end in such terrible sadness for us and the world will just end in a conflagration and the evil are going to win? The answer is no. They're not. Do you want to know why? Because God made the system. They can't break the operating system, but in trying to break it, they will eventually break themselves. They're at war with reality. They're attacking reality. Guess who's going to win that one? God desires for his people to live a happy, satisfied, complete, joy-filled life. How? By obeying his law. Note next, that the Lord requires. Judah, he requires. He doesn't suggest. He requires because he's in a position to require. He's Lord, our God, our master, our king, and he requires of us. We do not require of him. The modern world is at war with hierarchy. 
But the Bible is full of hierarchy. In families, in the church, in civil government, in business, almost everywhere. Some of us are placed in a position of authority. Some of us are placed in a position of submission. In fact, each of us lives in several hierarchies simultaneously. Sometimes we're in authority and sometimes in submission. Each of us is always in submission somewhere. The chief hierarchy on which all others is based is between the creator and creation, including man. All of creation, including man, stands under God's authority. Leftism and egalitarianism, that is radical equality, strike out against hierarchies. They claim that hierarchies are unfair, that everyone should be equal in everything, that every practice should be considered as legitimate as any other. Homosexuality and heterosexuality are equally valid. Men and women are interchangeable. Men can be domestic nurturers and women can be martial arts special forces heroes. This is patently absurd, but conformity with creation has never been a strong suit of godless egalitarians. Behind it all, the main hierarchy they wish to overturn is between God and creation. They don't like to be creatures. They are out to unseat the sovereign God. It's God they're really after. There was a popular, uh, musically gifted, and a quite perverted 70s rock band, some of you may have heard about, called Steely Dan. Steely Dan. They once wrote a song about this. The song is called God Whacker. You can look at it, listen to it on YouTube. Basically, it's the idea that demons got so angry at God's authority, they decided to put out a hit on God. Their goal was to take him out so they could live their lives in unhindered rebellion. Good luck with that. We live in a time of rampant autonomy. That word simply means self-law. People are a law to themselves. They can smash property and loot Banks and Nike stores and firebomb churches and kill police officers. Abusive police officers think they can treat their fellow humans with indignity and lethal force when it's not required. But perhaps the greatest autonomy of the day is sexual autonomy. My body, my choice. So goes the pro-abortion mantra. But this is simply part of a broader way of thinking. No one can dictate to me the standards of my sexual life. God created sexuality. He created humans, male and female. And by the way, that's all, only male and female. Justice Gorsuch is quite wrong about that. He knows what both men and women were created for because he's the one who did the creating. And he knows all about sexual satisfaction and he establishes the boundaries within which it should be practiced. If we spurn his will, there will be hell to pay. Actual hell if we don't repent. This is the high cost of low living. Satan deceives us. 
He convinces us that sin's instant pleasures will far outweigh any consequential pain. That is a lie. He's called the father of lies for a reason. Sin always costs us more than we want to pay. Sin always takes us farther than we want to go. And sin always keeps us longer than we want to stay. Judah, when I was uh, almost exactly your age, I loved to take long walks. One of the walks took me on a road, not a road very much traveled, uh, sort of an access road. Most of the traffic on that road was trucks going to delivering to or taking from a salt mine. Well, between my high school graduation and going off to college, I was walking one day, quiet, no one was there, walking along, and something caught my eye. Right in the middle of the road, I saw something shiny. And I looked, and I noticed that it was a magazine. What really struck me is not just that there was a magazine right out here in the middle of the road, out in the middle of nowhere, but it was glossy and it looked like it was brand new. I mean, how does that happen? On trucks that are traveling on this road. I mean, just a glossy magazine as if it were intentionally placed right in the middle of the road. So I walked by and I bent down and I looked and I noticed that the title was Intercourse Illustrated. Even at my age, I knew what probably was in that magazine. To this day, I'm quite sure that whether supernaturally or in some other way, Satan positioned that magazine at that time, at that pivotal point in my life, right in the middle of the road for me to see. And I leaned down and I looked at it. And by God's grace, I stood up and I walked on. Judah, I firmly believe that had I picked up that magazine and looked at it, the entire course of my life would have been different. Sin always takes us farther than we want to go. Sin always costs more than we want to pay. And sin always keeps us longer than we want to stay. Always remember that Satan has been deceiving humanity longer than any individual human has been resisting sin. He has more experience at tempting humans than you have at resisting him. He's an exceedingly effective tempter because he has a lot of experience. Though, thank God, we have the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. Our hope and calling and temptation is to resist him mightily. Respond with a very loud no. Judah, learn to say no. When temptation comes, learn to say no. Say it loudly, say it quietly, say it however you want to say it, but say no. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. God requires. What specifically does he require? First, he requires that we act justly. The Hebrew word means delivering and living by the right verdict. It brings to mind the very courtroom we're talking about. 
It no doubt seems strange to many Christians that this is the first thing God would require. We might think that God would say love is the first commandment. And loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourselves are the first two great commandments. But think about that last word. They are commandments. You ever thought about that? Love is a commandment. When we love, we're obeying God's law. To practice justice is to practice conformity to God's word. What does God's word tell me? That's always our first concern. When any issue arises, Judah, our first question should be, what does the Lord require? All of those who think of God's law as harsh and oppressive haven't thought the matter through. But they really like to live in a world in which standards are arbitrary? Oh, really? Would you actually prefer a world in which rape and murder and kidnapping and theft are permissible? Oh, really? A world in which love and kindness and tenderness and forgiveness are forbidden? Oh, really? The gods worshipped by the pagans surrounding Israel were arbitrary. They were constantly bickering with one another, changing their minds. They could be bought off with petty bribes. Not the sovereign God of the word of God. Not Yahweh. That's not the God of the Hebrews. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham asked. It was a rhetorical question. Of course he will. He always does right. And he calls us to do right as creatures. What next does the Lord require? He says to love mercy. That word translated mercy is perhaps the most difficult word to translate in all the Bible. The Hebrew word is, as we say it anglicized, hesed. Hesed. It's not only exceedingly difficult to translate, it's arguably the most important Hebrew word in the Bible, apart from the names for God himself. It occurs nearly 125 times in the Hebrew Bible, and its meanings include love and kindness and mercy and loyal love and dependability and steadfastness and faithfulness and glory and much, much more. Didn't I tell you? It's tough to translate. The word loving-kindness in our English Bible was invented. That compound word loving-kindness was invented to translate the Hebrew word hesed. In fact, it's possible there's no word in any language ever invented that has more meanings. Hesed is God's covenant love and tenderness and mercy and rock-solid faithfulness and sacrifice for his people. Perhaps we can say hesed is the comprehensive description of what the covenant God is to his people. When Micah tells the Jews they must love Hesed, he means they must love God for who he is in himself. They must love mercy and justice and tenderness and loving kindness. They should rise in the morning, Judah, giving thanks to God for his glorious creation and his provision of health and food and sunshine and reign and in the new covenant era, the sacrificial death and glorious resurrection and reign of his son. Eternal life as a gift in the shedding of Jesus' blood is a spectacular display of God's hesed. But Micah also means that we ourselves should display display hesed toward one another. It's not optional. It's what the Lord requires. We must treat others with love and kindness and mercy. 
When they wrong us and they repent, we must grant them forgiveness. We don't hold their deeds against them in our heart. We go out of our way to exhibit love and kindness toward others. It's not incidental. That's a central part of our lives. Hesed isn't a trait we grudgingly show others. Micah says we're to love. We are to love Hesed. We're to delight to demonstrate loving kindness. Hesed is almost invisible in contemporary culture. The sexes and races differing socioeconomic classes are in perpetual conflict with one another. If you check Twitter, and I'm not recommending you do, you'll see such vitriol that it'll turn your stomach. It's the absolute antithesis of Hesed. Hesed doesn't mean that we don't stand firmly and boldly for the truth. It means that in all our standing, we show love and kindness. We have no personal animosity or hatred. We persistently find ways to shower love and kindness on those around us. Obviously, this is not a marginal or secondary issue with God. It's what he requires. Judah, your job and ours is to help make this a Hesed world. Finally, what does the Lord require? He requires that we walk humbly before him. To walk humbly literally means to bow down in the going. What does this mean? It doesn't mean servile obeisance. It doesn't mean we're bowing and scraping and constantly afraid that God is going to rain down hardships on us. That's not what it means. It means a healthy reverence. It means knowing God is in heaven and we're on earth, as Ecclesiastes 5.2 tells us. It means knowing that he's a loving heavenly father who guides us and protects us and who's greater than we are. It means we're constantly in an attitude of worship toward him. Micah is contrasting this humility with what the Jews were offering God. They thought they could buy God off with formality and rituals and sacrifices. They even thought they could offer their own children as the demon god Moloch had demanded in the horrors of child sacrifice. Micah is saying that God demands simple, heartfelt obedience, walking in humility before him. That is what God requires. And he said walking, by the way, not sitting. The godly life is the direction of life. It's the aspirational life. It's going somewhere. Too many Christian young men today are aimless, diffident, and lazy. But God calls us to holy aspiration. To desire a good job and legitimate advancement and wealth and a wife and family and home and vocation aren't sinful desires. As long as they're submitted to the Lord God. Fill your mind and heart, Judah, with holy aspirations. Walk. Don't sit. Sometimes you'll even need to run. But always walk and run humbly. Recognize that in every moment and in every situation, you stand under God's living authority and loving authority. Judah, the Lord has shown you what is good. There's no confusion. There's no lack of clarity. You know what is good. It's revealed in his word. What does the Lord require? He requires us to act justly, to act according to his word. He requires us to love Hesed, 
to relish God's hesed, and to practice hesed, loving kindness among one another. Finally, we're to walk humbly before our God, to bow down in the going. At every moment, we live our lives before the presence of the Lord. And loving reverence and worship to Him should mark everything we do. If at the end of your life, Judah, you have done these three things, you will have done what the Lord requires. Thank you very much. Thank you, Johnson.